Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Douglas Wilson's Excused Absence, Should Christian Kids Leave Public Schools? Listen to the full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Chapter 1. The True Starting Point I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not increasingly occupied with the word of God must become corrupt. I am much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of youth. Martin Luther When it comes to government schools, we are all too familiar with some of the recent battlegrounds. What do we do about drug deals and guns? What about outcome-based education? Should we teach right from wrong? Can we pray in the classroom? Should creationism be taught? Add to this list another item a question recently asked by two legal scholars. Can we teach sexual abstinence in government schools without somehow violating the separation between church and state? When confronted with new issues like this abstinence argument, Christians usually respond by trying to reform government schools in some fashion, writing letters to the editor, seeking the floor at the next school board meeting, or running for a vacancy on the PTA. Each of these responses, however, misses the point that reforming government schools will never solve their fundamental problem. They are based on institutional agnosticism, if not outright hostility, to the Christian faith. In light of this undeniable reality, Christian parents really face one of two choices, either educate their children with Christ or educate them against Him. No other alternatives exist. In the end, Christian parents are called by God to educate their children not only about abstinence, but also about everything else under the sun he created. The alternative to the unhealthy secular fare regularly served up to our children today is not a dash of religious seasoning, but a whole new recipe. That's where this book comes in. It aims to persuade Christian parents to act wisely in their children's education by giving them the kind of education the Bible requires, a distinctively Christian education, which their children cannot receive at government schools. To establish this point, we will not cite studies on the general state of government education in our country, because we are awash in such studies. In fact, the only thing we learn from these studies is that they don't make any difference, just like our schools. If they were what we really needed, all our educational problems would have been solved long ago. Is and Ought The issue is not statistics, but morality. The issue ultimately is not what the situation is, but what we should do as parents. Consequently, this book will focus on the reasons Christian children need to receive a distinctively Christian education, either in a traditional Christian school setting or at home. And I will be blunt in the process. The unbelieving state of government schools and the covenant responsibilities of Christian parents combine to create a need for some straight talk and concerted action. The obligation of Christians to provide a Christian education for their children is one that existed in Scripture long before prayer and the Ten Commandments were driven out of government schools. It existed long before atheistic educators like Horace Mann or John Dewey ever had an unbelieving thought in their heads. Accordingly, we cannot find the foundation for our renewed obedience merely by tracing the historical development of our disobedience. In other words, our educational obligations do not come into existence through any reaction to the dismal state of government schools. Of course, when the dismal state of those schools causes some parents to reconsider their biblical responsibilities, we rejoice. 
But we all would do well to remember that there was a time in our history when the government schools were much less offensive, but still just as wrong in principle. We must define the basic biblical issues clearly, then apply them to our contemporary situation. We must seek to understand the biblical principles, then act from those principles. Reaction is no basis for renewal in education. Simply pulling away is very different from repentance. Repentance is radical, going to the root of the problem. Reaction is superficial and runs away from drug deals, guns, outcome-based education, outlawed prayer, evolution, sex education, and all the rest, without ever really understanding why these things are upon us. When your basement is flooding, the first thing to find is the main valve, not a bucket and a sponge. Because government education is failing, we need to get to the source and avoid hiding the symptoms. Cherished Beliefs Education is the process of taking a culture's values, assumptions, traditions, and beliefs, then transmitting them from one generation to the next. Because our culture is in crisis, we should not be surprised that the process of education also is in crisis. We have established a vast machinery for educating our children. Compulsory education laws to require attendance for many years, significant tax burdens on property owners to pay for it all, and politicians who promise to support this ganglion of problems. We have built an immense mechanism to pass on our cherished beliefs to our children, but, much to our chagrin, we have now come to discover that we no longer have any cherished beliefs. Actually, we do have one cherished belief left, that our government schools exist for the kids, and that a vote for school levies is necessarily a vote for the kids. Anyone who differs with this belief, we are told, must be hostile to kids. This cherished belief remains with us largely through inertia. We keep doing what we have done because we do not know what else to do. And all we have left is the hollow rhetoric of a previous era. As we have seen in many cultures, such as the pragmatic picture of Cicero in ancient Rome, functional idolatry usually outlasts a true belief in the gods. Cynicism about the deities may abound, but for the sake of cultural cohesion and continuity, the sacrifices continue. This inertia is where we are today. Selling Out We cannot dispute that modern secular education is an outdated idol. Horace Mann, who lived from 1796 to 1859, can safely be considered the father of government schools in the United States. He once reflected his trust in his savior when he said that education is our only political safety. Outside of this ark, he thought, is all deluge. But despite the best efforts of our best pedagogues, this ark continues to sink. Contrary to the instructions given, we did not build it from gopher wood, thinking instead to try the bricks of atheistic science and the cinder blocks of godless rationalism. Some things just don't float as well. H.G. Wells echoed this understanding of the basic human dilemma when he said that our history was turning into a race between education and catastrophe. Those who have grave doubts about the efficacy of our educational system know that catastrophe is really and permanently bad. They have severe doubts about our educational system, but no doubts at all about the catastrophe. Because they believe that education and catastrophe are the only choices on the menu, they continue to place their orders by clinging to the long-discredited nostrums. What is the alternative? Tragically, many Christian parents are entangled in this disastrous reasoning and have come to share several idolatrous assumptions of their unbelieving neighbors. On any given day from September to June, an agnostic family, 
a Muslim family, an atheist family, a Buddhist family, and a Christian family all see to it that their children clamor onto the very same yellow school bus and get shuttled off to learn about the world God made, or the world that evolved, or whatever works. We have proven to be very naive about the ways education can be utilized. As Joseph Stalin put it, education is a weapon whose effects depend on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. Under our current circumstances, naivete is disobedience and therefore dangerous. Christian parents who seek to educate their children in the government school system allow their children to be instructed according to the tenets of another religion. The problem is even worse because the very existence of our government school system depends upon an ongoing willingness of Christian parents to surrender their children. The secular state has made a free education available, and all that we need to do is to turn our children over to be taught that God is irrelevant to all of life's pursuits. They learn that every subject of study can be competently addressed, or so the claim goes, without any reference to Him. For some reason, Christian parents go along with this reasoning. Why? A free education need not be a Christian education. Put another way, when we sold our kids, we got a good price for them. What lies ahead? In the pages to follow, we will see that God calls Christian parents to think clearly about the education of their children. In order to understand our divine calling, we must first take a look at how we got government schools and where we find ourselves today. Chapter 2. We also must acknowledge the root of the problem in our homes. Chapter 3. After painting this backdrop, we will discuss the six reasons Christian children need a distinctively Christian education. First, neutrality is impossible in any endeavor, much less in education. Christ is Lord of all, including the three cornerstones of all true Christian education. Truth, chapter 4, goodness, chapter 5, and beauty, chapter 6. Second, although government schools are built on the quicksand of pragmatism, the belief that truth is what works, government schools cannot really work because they ignore the context for all true education. Chapter 7. Third, God calls us to train our children to love Him, not only with all their heart, soul, and strength, but also with all their mind. Chapter 8. Fourth, the Bible requires parents to educate their children in accordance with a biblical worldview from the time they get up until the time they go to sleep. Chapter 9. Fifth, there is no such thing as a free lunch, but for too long, Christian parents have believed that public education is free when the legal tender paid is indeed tender. They're very children. Chapter 10. Sixth, Christian parents disobey God at their peril and the peril of their children by offering them to the three false gods of all government education, pragmatism, pluralism, and relativism. Chapter 11. After presenting the biblical case for providing our children with a distinctively Christian education, we will discuss several common objections and answer them based on Scripture. Chapter 12. Then we will turn our attention to what makes an education truly Christian. Chapter 13. We also will look at pitfalls of both Christian schools and Christian homeschools. Chapter 14. The missing ingredients of all government schools. Chapter 15 and the need for covenant love and joy that only a true Christian education, by the grace of God, can produce. Chapter 16. Finally, we will wrap up by reminding ourselves that there can be no good thing apart from faith in the Lord, who made and saved us, who promises to be our all in all. 
chapter 17. You gotta believe. Throughout this book, we must keep in mind the biblical truth that we will explore in the last chapter, that faith without works is dead, and its corollary, that works without faith is rank legalism. We begin the Christian life by grace, and we end it by grace. Ephesians 2, 8-9 It is grace, grace, and more grace throughout. But we are God's workmanship, created for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Therefore, it is high time to walk in those good works regarding our children. We also must understand two fundamentals of the faith. The first is the antithesis or contrast between belief and unbelief that pervades all reality. The second is the biblical definition of the good life. We must master the antithesis so that we do not accept spurious forms of education for our children. And we must understand the good life so that we know what and how we are to teach. We study the antithesis so that we might know what to avoid. And we study the good life so that we know what to provide. Along the way, we must discover that genuine Christian education is not optional. It is a biblical mandate. So we turn now to how we got where we find ourselves today. How we ended up with government schools at war with God. Chapter 2. How We Got Here The United States' stem of national popular education will be the most efficient and wide instrument for the propagation of atheism which the world has ever seen. A. A. Hodge The American character is a fascinating study, and we cannot understand it apart from the process of education that we have adopted. We can trace the degeneration of the American character by looking at the change in our education, from Christian education, to a secular agenda. The Older Order When our colonies were first established, we were a European people, particularly characterized by the flavor of the British Isles, with an overwhelming Scottish and Scotch-Irish influence. Compared to the rest of Europe, the British Isles had a longer and more deeply entrenched tradition of liberty under law. We inherited this tradition from the very first, and exhibited this character very clearly. In the middle colonies and in the south, this influence was greatest from Scottish and Scotch-Irish immigrants. In the early 18th century, these Calvinistic Presbyterians came to the colonies by the hundreds of thousands. They brought the mentality of the older order. When the common schools were first established on a widespread basis, their model was a new and scientific import from Prussia. Progressive education, education that was more modern and scientific, already had deep roots on the continent. Going back to the time of an educational reformer named Jan Amos Comenius, who was born in 1592. He became a bishop in the Union of Bohemian Brethren, which was the most biblical branch of the Moravians. He was a man of exemplary personal piety, but this piety was unfortunately employed in the propagation of a host of progressive and utopian ideas in education. These ideas afflict us to this day. To use Jean-Marc Bertou's memorable summary, Comenius was the forerunner of all the most lethal errors which we associate with the totalitarian utopias and revolutionary messianic political orders which have ravaged the modern world. As the population of Europe grew, the thoughts of more and more intellectuals turned to progressive education as an important element of social engineering. Of course, the same ideological tendencies were at work in the British Isles, but with greater conflict. Many of those most hostile to the rising tide of humanistic rationalism decided to come to our shores. 
Two Great Impulses Up through the 18th century, our nation was part of the older order of Christendom, but by the beginning of the 19th century, this old order began to collapse. This collapse of the old orthodoxies in America stemmed from two great impulses. The first was simply the force of gravity. The natural man, no matter where or when he lives, does not love the doctrines of grace, and he will slip the leash first chance he gets. The Christian worldview does not flatter man, and man in his rebellion loves to be flattered. Thus, when a Christian culture comes to the point where a large number of people are unregenerate, a collision is inevitable. The Christian ethic is generally held by that culture through inertia, but those who do not love God chafe under its restrictions, particularly sexual restrictions. The stage, therefore, is set for a revolt. This impulse is why we constantly need to preach the gospel powerfully, especially in ostensibly Christian nations. But coupled with this impulse was a second impulse, a rising individualism and sense of self-reliance, which came from living on the frontier. The myth of American rugged individualism began to develop at this time and radically redefined the nature of the Christian faith. Instead of taking great satisfaction from living in the midst of the church as a covenant community, the frontier heroes were magnificent in their isolation. As one frontiersman put it, when he got to fight and bar, he felt mighty numerous. Humanism's Coup We see both processes at work in the early part of the 19th century. In the North, the Second Great Awakening, led by men like Charles Finney, redirected evangelical zeal in a very man-centered direction. The focus on methodology reigned supreme. Religious enthusiasm remained only to obscure the departure of genuine Christian faith. Finney denied cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But he obscured this denial through his enthusiastic promotion of revivals. To this day, many define the term evangelical apart from confessional doctrinal content and in terms of intensity of a religious encounter with Jesus, whoever the zealot thinks Jesus is. In Finney's hands, a revival was nothing more than the right manipulation of certain techniques conducive to saving souls. It was through Finney that humanism became established in evangelical circles, and, because of Finney, Many evangelicals are unable to recognize the antithesis between the humanism of government schools and what they hear in their pulpits. Evangelicals cannot see the antithesis between the two because there is no fundamental difference between secular humanism and religious humanism tricked out with a few Christian decorations. Around the same time as Finney, the unbelief of humanistic Unitarianism, the heretical denial of the Trinity, and other truths of Orthodox Christianity in favor of doctrines such as the perfectibility of mankind and self-improvement, was rampant among New England's intellectual elite. Harvard was captured by the Unitarians in 1805, but the response of the evangelicals was unfortunately just as humanistic as the overt liberalism they battled. The revivals were just as man-centered as the unbelief that had captured the intellectual centers. New evangelical and Unitarian leaders were therefore able to agree on one thing, the old historic Protestant orthodoxy had to go. That orthodoxy was dismissed under the nickname of Calvinism, but that nickname represented the mainstream Protestant conviction from the Reformation down to the turn of the 19th century. Prior to this great apostasy, Christians in this country were overwhelmingly Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Congregational, and Baptist. 
Arising on the political front at this time was Jacksonian democracy, a self-conscious rejection of the older aristocratic order. That older order, as mentioned before, was Christian, and the new order, despite loud claims of faith in God, was actually driven by faith in a new god, Demos, the people. As we consider the rise of government education, we have to remember that these things never happen suddenly, as if someone turned the lights off. We are dealing with millions of people and a culture in transition. We can find many elements of the old and new existing side by side. Some representatives of the older order are still alive today, and advocates of modernity could be found earlier than this turning point. Nevertheless, this period of rising humanism, revivalism, rationalism, and democratism created the climate in which our government school movement came into being. The Common Schools Having set this stage, we must back up for a moment and consider the common schools of New England, which were a feature of colonial life almost from the beginning. These common schools, although not numerous, were supported through taxes and thus were public schools. Therefore, we can distinguish tax-supported education from what we have now, which is tax-supported pluralistic education. The former had been found in various forms in the reformed countries of Europe. John Knox and Martin Luther had both been involved in establishing common schools. The New England Puritans followed them in this enterprise, and thus unwittingly set the stage for the horrific takeover of these schools. But the religious climate of New England had been homogenous with established state churches existing into the early 19th century. Put another way, the first government schools in America were Christian schools. Thus, society-wide insistence on the education of other people's children existed before the rise of secularism. It was not necessarily before the rise of some progressive thinking about education. Remember the influence of earlier progressives like Comenius. But that thinking, while pernicious, had not yet borne its bitter fruit in America. This call for general education, although somewhat authoritarian, was manifested in the midst of a homogenous culture where the thought of our current smorgasbord approach to education would have been appalling. Though the New England fathers were unwise to form tax-supported schools, they were not guilty of the folly of pluralism. Their error was genuine, but compared to ours, it was trivial. These schools were few in number, and they were localized in New England, where the Puritans had always tended to a little godly bossiness. So tax-funded schools are a bad idea but they pale in comparison to tax-supported centers for the propagation of pluralistic agnosticism. As R. L. Dabney clearly pointed out, the New England Puritans agreed to public schools only because there was, at that time, no separation between church and state, as we have today, and the state was committed by law to teaching in the light of the Reformed faith. As Dabney put it, If Knox had seen a severance of church and state, which he would have denounced as wicked and pagan, leading to a secular education which trained the intellect without the conscience or heart, his heroic tongue would have given no uncertain sound. In the Middle Colonies and in the South, a broader and more consistent Reformed theology prevailed and did not result in any government schools. So, taking one thing with another, this climate, from the founding of the colonies down to the beginning of the 19th century, was a predominantly Christian vision of education. Turning South that initial vision was supplanted beginning in the 19th century, even though many of the Christian trappings remained in place down through the 20th century. In the 19th century, one of the fathers of modern atheistic American education arrived on the scene, Horace Mann. 
Although he had been brought up in the Calvinistic faith, he came to hate that faith with passion. Mann was a convinced Unitarian and mirrored the apostasy of virtually the entire New England intellectual elite. Under the influence of Mann, the common schools began to spread in New England and areas affected by New England. The New England intelligentsia did not make any progress in the South, where the intellectual leadership was still Orthodox and Christian. The South had government schools imposed on her later, in the aftermath of the war between the states. Resistance to the spreading common schools was solid in the South, because the Second Great Awakening had been far more doctrinally sound than in New England, and had not led to the same problems as were visible in the North. In fact, the general apostasy of the North was one of the factors in the building tension that ultimately led to civil war. The government schools in the South were established as part of a larger cultural conquest, which occurred as a result of a lot of bloodshed. An interesting tension developed. The intellectual movement behind the spreading government schools consisted almost exclusively of unbelievers. But because the society was still sufficiently decentralized, each local school was run by school boards, which were mostly evangelical and Christian. The pagans built the machinery, and the Christians volunteered to run it at the local level. And the memory of this local control explains why so many Christians today still accept the notion that the government schools are somehow our schools. Doing unto others When these schools were first established, the Roman Catholics felt that the government schools were Protestant and were not their schools. Protestant Bibles were used, Protestant prayers were said, Protestant catechisms were recited. The Roman Catholic parochial school system grew out of this development. The Catholics didn't necessarily see the approaching secularism in the classroom before the Protestants did. They simply objected to Protestantism in the classroom. So the Catholic parochial school system was formed because of the conviction, accurate enough at the time, that the government school system was basically the school system for Protestants. At this time, the United States had an informal established religion, evangelical Protestantism. As an established religion, it enjoyed support from taxpayers. But the taxpayers, including increasing numbers of people who were not evangelical Protestants. The great wave of immigration in the 19th century, for example, brought in thousands upon thousands of Irish Catholics. When they arrived, they found themselves being taxed to support a school system that propagated a worldview foreign to theirs. Part of our problem today, having a foreign worldview imposed on us, is that we did not have a problem when we were doing it to others. Now that others are doing it to us, we yell like we really hate injustice. But what goes around comes around. Christian parents need to understand the principles involved, especially whose ox is being gored. What Catholics opposed when Protestants were behind the wheel, Protestants now oppose when the secularists are behind the wheel. Because of this fact, we do not have the moral authority to object. Without repentance, we will never have that moral authority. The Final Takeover Protestants were content with the informal establishment of their religion and were comfortable with the idea of government schools as friendly to them. They thought this state of affairs would last forever, all by itself, untended and unguarded. But as the 20th century unfolded, modernity proved itself to be more and more overtly hostile. Christians had been content with the removal of the substance of the Christian faith, but they had been allowed for a time to keep the trappings. But because unbelief hates even the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the final takeover eventually began. Some saw it coming. 
Long before the overt secularization of government education, Dabney prophesied in the 19th century that it was just a matter of time. He said, Nearly all public men and preachers declare that the public schools are the glory of America. They are a finality and in no event to be surrendered. We have seen that their complete secularization is logically inevitable. Christians must prepare themselves then for the following results. All prayers, catechisms, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. We read these words and wonder aloud to ourselves, we used to have catechisms in the schools? We remember when prayer was driven out in the 60s, but we do not realize that the government schools used to be Christian schools, with far more Christian content than exists in many private Christian schools today. But even though they were Christian schools, they were unwisely established on a secular foundation. Those with wisdom saw that such an institution eventually had to have consistency between the foundation and the superstructure. They also saw that the secular foundation was going to prevail. Ideas and Consequences The secular foundation was bound to prevail because ideas have consequences, which work themselves out over time. The rapidity with which the vestiges of the once-dominant Christian faith have been thrown out of the government schools within the last generation does not represent a massive and recent assault by the forces of secularization. Rather, it indicates the patience of those forces. Secularists set the machinery of this particular takeover in place in the latter half of the last century, and they built the machine to operate slowly and imperceptibly. The work has been done over the course of numerous generations. Just because we see the symbols of the old order tumbling rapidly, we should not conclude that everything was fine shortly before. The crash of a house may be spectacular and may seem very sudden, but no one was watching when the termites were quietly doing their work. American Christians were allowed to believe that their faith would be protected, even propagated, in the government schools, and that their values would be respected. But this was all a lie, and the sooner we come to recognize that lie, the sooner we can come to grips with the problems we now face. And the problems we now face didn't two. just appear How in the classroom. The root of these problems the grows States at stem home of national and branches education from there will be the we most efficient and wide and instrument the for the, the propagation problem. of atheism which the world has ever seen. A. A. Hodge The American character is a fascinating study, and we cannot understand it apart from the process of education that we have adopted. We can trace the degeneration of the American character by looking at the change in our education from Christian education to a secular agenda. The Older Order When our colonies were first established, we were a European people, particularly characterized by the flavor of the British Isles, with an overwhelming Scottish and Scotch-Irish influence. Compared to the rest of Europe, the British Isles had a longer and more deeply entrenched tradition of liberty under law. We inherited this tradition from the very first, and exhibited this character very clearly. In the Middle Colonies and in the South, this influence was greatest from Scottish and Scotch-Irish immigrants. In the early 18th century, these Calvinistic Presbyterians came to the colonies by the hundreds of thousands. They brought the mentality of the older order. When the common schools were first established on a widespread basis, their model was a new and scientific import from Prussia. Progressive education, education that was more modern and scientific, already had deep roots on the continent. Going back to the time of an educational reformer named Jan Amos Comenius, who was born in 1592. 
he became a bishop in the Union of Bohemian Brethren, which was the most biblical branch of the Moravians. He was a man of exemplary personal piety, but this piety was unfortunately employed in the propagation of a host of progressive and utopian ideas in education. These ideas afflict us to this day. To use Jean-Marc Bertou's memorable summary, Comenius was the forerunner of all the most lethal errors which we associate with the totalitarian utopias and revolutionary messianic political orders which have ravaged the modern world. As the population of Europe grew, the thoughts of more and more intellectuals turned to progressive education as an important element of social engineering. Of course, the same ideological tendencies were at work in the British Isles, but with greater conflict. Many of those most hostile to the rising tide of humanistic rationalism decided to come to our shores. Two Great Impulses Up through the 18th century, our nation was part of the older order of Christendom, but by the beginning of the 19th century, this old order began to collapse. This collapse of the old orthodoxies in America stemmed from two great impulses. The first was simply the force of gravity. The natural man, no matter where or when he lives, does not love the doctrines of grace, and he will slip the leash first chance he gets. The Christian worldview does not flatter man, and man in his rebellion loves to be flattered. Thus, when a Christian culture comes to the point where a large number of people are unregenerate, a collision is inevitable. The Christian ethic is generally held by that culture through inertia, but those who do not love God chafe under its restrictions, particularly sexual restrictions. The stage, therefore, is set for a revolt. This impulse is why we constantly need to preach the gospel powerfully, especially in ostensibly Christian nations. But coupled with this impulse was a second impulse, a rising individualism and sense of self-reliance, which came from living on the frontier. The myth of American rugged individualism began to develop at this time and radically redefined the nature of the Christian faith. Instead of taking great satisfaction from living in the midst of the church as a covenant community, the frontier heroes were magnificent in their isolation. As one frontiersman put it, when he got to fight and bar, he felt mighty numerous. Humanism's Coup We see both processes at work in the early part of the 19th century. In the North, the Second Great Awakening, led by men like Charles Finney, redirected evangelical zeal in a very man-centered direction. The focus on methodology reigned supreme. Religious enthusiasm remained only to obscure the departure of genuine Christian faith. Finney denied cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But he obscured this denial through his enthusiastic promotion of revivals. To this day, many define the term evangelical apart from confessional doctrinal content and in terms of intensity of a religious encounter with Jesus, whoever the zealot thinks Jesus is. In Finney's hands, a revival was nothing more than the right manipulation of certain techniques conducive to saving souls. It was through Finney that humanism became established in evangelical circles, and, because of Finney, Many evangelicals are unable to recognize the antithesis between the humanism of government schools and what they hear in their pulpits. Evangelicals cannot see the antithesis between the two because there is no fundamental difference between secular humanism and religious humanism tricked out with a few Christian decorations. Around the same time as Finney, the unbelief of humanistic Unitarianism, 
the heretical denial of the Trinity, and other truths of Orthodox Christianity in favor of doctrines such as the perfectibility of mankind and self-improvement, was rampant among New England's intellectual elite. Harvard was captured by the Unitarians in 1805, but the response of the evangelicals was unfortunately just as humanistic as the overt liberalism they battled. The revivals were just as man-centered as the unbelief that had captured the intellectual centers. New evangelical and Unitarian leaders were therefore able to agree on one thing. The old historic Protestant orthodoxy had to go. That orthodoxy was dismissed under the nickname of Calvinism. But that nickname represented the mainstream Protestant conviction from the Reformation down to the turn of the 19th century. Prior to this great apostasy, Christians in this country were overwhelmingly Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Congregational, and Baptist. Arising on the political front at this time was Jacksonian democracy, a self-conscious rejection of the older aristocratic order. That older order, as mentioned before, was Christian, and the new order, despite loud claims of faith in God, was actually driven by faith in a new god, Demos, the people. As we consider the rise of government education, we have to remember that these things never happen suddenly, as if someone turned the lights off. We are dealing with millions of people and a culture in transition. We can find many elements of the old and new existing side by side. Some representatives of the older order are still alive today, and advocates of modernity could be found earlier than this turning point. Nevertheless, this period of rising humanism, revivalism, rationalism, and democratism created the climate in which our government school movement came into being. The Common Schools Having set this stage, we must back up for a moment and consider the common schools of New England, which were a feature of colonial life almost from the beginning. These common schools, although not numerous, were supported through taxes and thus were public schools. Therefore, we can distinguish tax-supported education from what we have now, which is tax-supported pluralistic education. The former had been found in various forms in the reformed countries of Europe. John Knox and Martin Luther had both been involved in establishing common schools. The New England Puritans followed them in this enterprise, and thus unwittingly set the stage for the horrific takeover of these schools. But the religious climate of New England had been homogenous with established state churches existing into the early 19th century. Put another way, the first government schools in America were Christian schools. Thus, society-wide insistence on the education of other people's children existed before the rise of secularism. It was not necessarily before the rise of some progressive thinking about education. Remember the influence of earlier progressives like Comenius. But that thinking, while pernicious, had not yet borne its bitter fruit in America. This call for general education, although somewhat authoritarian, was manifested in the midst of a homogenous culture where the thought of our current smorgasbord approach to education would have been appalling. Though the New England fathers were unwise to form tax-supported schools, they were not guilty of the folly of pluralism. Their error was genuine, but compared to ours, it was trivial. These schools were few in number, and they were localized in New England, where the Puritans had always tended to a little godly bossiness. So tax-funded schools are a bad idea but they pale in comparison to tax-supported centers for the propagation of pluralistic agnosticism. As R. L. Dabney clearly pointed out, the New England Puritans agreed to public schools only because there was, at that time, no separation between church and state, as we have today, 
and the state was committed by law to teaching in the light of the Reformed faith. As Dabney put it, If Knox had seen a severance of church and state, which he would have denounced as wicked and pagan, leading to a secular education which trained the intellect without the conscience or heart, his heroic tongue would have given no uncertain sound. In the Middle Colonies and in the South, a broader and more consistent Reformed theology prevailed and did not result in any government schools. So, taking one thing with another, this climate, from the founding of the colonies down to the beginning of the 19th century, was a predominantly Christian vision of education. Turning South That initial vision was supplanted beginning in the 19th century, even though many of the Christian trappings remained in place down through the 20th century. In the 19th century, one of the fathers of modern atheistic American education arrived on the scene, Horace Mann. Although he had been brought up in the Calvinistic faith, he came to hate that faith with passion. Mann was a convinced Unitarian and mirrored the apostasy of virtually the entire New England intellectual elite. Under the influence of Mann, the common schools began to spread in New England and areas affected by New England. The New England intelligentsia did not make any progress in the South, where the intellectual leadership was still Orthodox and Christian. The South had government schools imposed on her later, in the aftermath of the war between the states. Resistance to the spreading common schools was solid in the South, because the Second Great Awakening had been far more doctrinally sound than in New England, and had not led to the same problems as were visible in the North. In fact, the general apostasy of the North was one of the factors in the building tension that ultimately led to civil war. The government schools in the South were established as part of a larger cultural conquest, which occurred as a result of a lot of bloodshed. An interesting tension developed. The intellectual movement behind the spreading government schools consisted almost exclusively of unbelievers. But because the society was still sufficiently decentralized, each local school was run by school boards, which were mostly evangelical and Christian. The pagans built the machinery, and the Christians volunteered to run it at the local level. And the memory of this local control explains why so many Christians today still accept the notion that the government schools are somehow our schools. Doing unto others When these schools were first established, the Roman Catholics felt that the government schools were Protestant and were not their schools. Protestant Bibles were used, Protestant prayers were said, Protestant catechisms were recited. The Roman Catholic parochial school system grew out of this development. The Catholics didn't necessarily see the approaching secularism in the classroom before the Protestants did. They simply objected to Protestantism in the classroom. So, the Catholic parochial school system was formed because of the conviction, accurate enough at the time, that the government school system was basically the school system for Protestants. At this time, the United States had an informal established religion, Evangelical Protestantism. As an established religion, it enjoyed support from taxpayers. But the taxpayers, including increasing numbers of people who were not evangelical Protestants. The great wave of immigration in the 19th century, for example, brought in thousands upon thousands of Irish Catholics. When they arrived, they found themselves being taxed to support a school system that propagated a worldview foreign to theirs. Part of our problem today, having a foreign worldview imposed on us, is that we did not have a problem when we were doing it to others. Now that others are doing it to us, we yell like we really hate injustice. But what goes around comes around. Christian parents need to understand the principles involved, 
especially whose ox is being gored. What Catholics opposed when Protestants were behind the wheel, Protestants now oppose when the secularists are behind the wheel. Because of this fact, we do not have the moral authority to object. Without repentance, we will never have that moral authority. The Final Takeover Protestants were content with the informal establishment of their religion and were comfortable with the idea of government schools as friendly to them. They thought this state of affairs would last forever, all by itself, untended and unguarded. But as the 20th century unfolded, modernity proved itself to be more and more overtly hostile. Christians had been content with the removal of the substance of the Christian faith, but they had been allowed for a time to keep the trappings. But because unbelief hates even the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the final takeover eventually began. Some saw it coming. Long before the overt secularization of government education, Dabney prophesied in the 19th century that it was just a matter of time. He said, Nearly all public men and preachers declare that the public schools are the glory of America. They are a finality and in no event to be surrendered. We have seen that their complete secularization is logically inevitable. Christians must prepare themselves then for the following results. All prayers, catechisms, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. We read these words and wonder aloud to ourselves, we used to have catechisms in the schools? We remember when prayer was driven out in the 60s, but we do not realize that the government schools used to be Christian schools, with far more Christian content than exists in many private Christian schools today. But even though they were Christian schools, they were unwisely established on a secular foundation. Those with wisdom saw that such an institution eventually had to have consistency between the foundation and the superstructure. They also saw that the secular foundation was going to prevail. Ideas and Consequences The secular foundation was bound to prevail because ideas have consequences, which work themselves out over time. The rapidity with which the vestiges of the once-dominant Christian faith have been thrown out of the government schools within the last generation does not represent a massive and recent assault by the forces of secularization. Rather, it indicates the patience of those forces. Secularists set the machinery of this particular takeover in place in the latter half of the last century, and they built the machine to operate slowly and imperceptibly. The work has been done over the course of numerous generations. Just because we see the symbols of the old order tumbling rapidly, we should not conclude that everything was fine shortly before. The crash of a house may be spectacular and may seem very sudden, but no one was watching when the termites were quietly doing their work. American Christians were allowed to believe that their faith would be protected, even propagated, in the government schools, and that their values would be respected. But this was all a lie, and the sooner we come to recognize that lie, the sooner we can come to grips with the problems we now face. And the problems we now face didn't just appear in the classroom. The root of these problems grows at home and branches out from there. We need to turn briefly and get to the root of the problem. If you enjoyed this episode, listen to the full audiobook available now on Canon+. Plus. Just click the link in the show notes to start listening today.